So we covered a lot of our think ideas in the first section when we outlined, and that's why our first section was a little long this time. But we do have a few left for this section, and the first thing I want to look at really is how bad things were in Judah. Because God says over and over, as we have seen, he says, Shall I not punish you? Um, can I? How can I take you back, pretty much? He's asking them. Verse 29 of chapter 5, he repeats what he said in verse 9. It's the exact same verse. Shall I not punish them for these things, declares the Lord? Shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? So what exactly is going on in the nation such as this? What has made it so bad? Well, there's several things. Easily summed up in this first phrase or this first word that continues throughout these chapters that we're looking at this week. Evil. The hearts of the people are said to be evil. Chapter 3 and verse 5 says, You have done all of the evil that you could. Chapter 3 and verse 17 they shall no more stubbornly stubbornly follow their own evil heart. Talking there about uh, the hope of repentance. Chapter 4, verse 22. They are wise in doing evil, but how to do good they know not. Chapter 5, verse 28. They know no bounds in deeds of evil. And then chapter 6 and verse 7 gives a, a poetic description of it. It's really my favorite. It says, As a well keeps its water fresh, so she keeps fresh her evil. So there is a lot of evil going on in they're the nation. Experts they're, at it, right? That's what they're good at. That's what they've been studying, and that's what they care about. And what they try hard at is being mm-hmm. evil. Right. It reminds me six verse seven, where it talks about the waters of a well, and they're fresh every day, and then so fresh is the evil of Israel. Reminds me of the statement about God, you know, your mercies are new every morning uh, with every day, you know, talking about how your mercy and your love, they never end. That's from Jeremiah also. Right. Mm -hmm. In Lamentations, but, you know, it seems to be his, one of his poetic turns that he uses for both of them in opposite ways. Mm -hmm. So it's really, you know, kind of the anti- uh, really, I guess, anti-God here. As God is fresh mm-hmm. every day with love and mercy, Judah here is fresh every day with evil. Yeah. And that's what they continue in. Uh, moving on, though. Uh, the evil spread to everybody. The prophets, the priests, and the kings as well. The people that are supposed to be great in the nation were, in fact, also among those who are practicing evil. Look what uh, God says, or what Jeremiah says, um, in chapter 5 and verse 4, I guess we run into the same kind of issue we talked about in the first section. Verse 4, Then I said, These are only the poor. They have no sense, for they do not know the way of the Lord, the justice of their God. Kind of this idea of, okay, these people that are evil, that must be the poor, the people that are that are not very... Uh, he says here, those that don't have sense. But then look in verse 5, I will go to the great and speak to them, for they know the way of the Lord and the justice of their God, but they all alike had broken the yoke. They all had burst the bonds. Chapter 4 and verse 9, he's talking about the coming destruction. He says, In that day courage will fail, king and official. The priests will be appalled and the prophets astounded. Chapter 6 and verse 13 is the best summation of this idea. For from the least to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. And from prophet to priest, 
everyone deals falsely. This is going to come up again in our next episode uh, with chapter 7 and chapter 8 listing some of the problems individually of the priests and the prophets. I don't yeah, think, I think we're going to have to do an, I think we're going to have to do a whole episode on leadership. Yeah. You know, because uh, deeper into the book, there's a whole chapter, I can't remember exactly which one, but there's a whole chapter devoted to the shepherds, prophets, priests, their corruption, and there's a, boy, I wish I could remember where it was. I read it a while ago, but there's a good line about what the way a shepherd should be in here. Well, there's... Um, in chapter in, 3 somewhere. In verse 15, I think. That's yeah, where I was just about that's the kind of... Oh, you... Sorry. No, 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 you go ahead. No, I... You, Great minds, right? Great minds yeah. think alike. Yeah. yeah. Uh, verse 15. And I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. So kind of he's saying there, you know, if you repent, we'll fix this leader problem. Because right now your leaders are caught up in the same amount of evil as everyone well, else. He's fixing the leader problem. Oh, yeah. He's he's taking them out. Soon yeah. to be gone. That That's why there's so many kings listed in Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Because they weren't, with the exception of Josiah, they weren't good, so they were removed. Mm-hmm. And the next one wouldn't obey, and he was removed, and we'll see right. a lot of that. So there's mm-hmm. going to be a lot on leadership from Jeremiah, I believe, and I, I think we probably will be devoting an entire episode to it. But corruption of leadership is right. is one of the symptoms of the whole problem here. And to me, the corruption of the prophets and priests is especially bad. The kings, is I mean, that's bad. Because they but, have the authority, you understand, the right. use of power just always comes from... Right. But the prophets and priests, they're supposed to be the holy people set apart. Yeah. Even among the holy people of God, and they're too uh, corrupt. They're also, the nation's also foolish. We've read that already. 422, my people are foolish. Uh, Continuing on, they're stupid children. They have no understanding. Uh, Chapter 5, verse 21, calls them a foolish and senseless people. They're also stubborn and rebellious. We read chapter 5 and verse 3 that I think sums it up really in the best way possible. They have made their faces harder than rock. They have refused to repent. Uh, They're also callous. Chapter 5 and verse 3, you have struck them down, but they felt no anguish. And we already talked about 6.15 where they don't know how to blush. Then finally, all of this compounded together. They're evil uh, stemming all the way to the leadership, their foolishness, their refusal to repent because of the callousness of their hearts. They're going to be rejected. Chapter 6 and verse 30, uh, a very interesting, really a cool scene here. In verse 27, he says to Jeremiah, I've made you a tester of metals among my people that you may know and test their ways. And then he goes on to say how they are stubbornly rebellious. And then in verse 30, he says, Rejected silver they are called, for the Lord has rejected them. Hmm. And, that, and so there's... In vain the refining goes on. That's a really good passage that we had to skip over in the reading, but you know, those last verses of chapter six, you know, that's just a really great analogy. You see this is full of uh you know, we're reading this as God's word, but sometimes you just pause and you look at it and you say, This is not just inspiration. I mean it's yeah. great literature. Right. You read it, it's just really interesting. Oh yeah. The way Jeremiah writes, um, and we're you know we'll see lots of examples of that as we go through. Hey, I got something to think about. I've heard this before, 
But you know, I said this was kind of shocking. I think a lot of people are startled to see God talking about divorce as a participant in divorce mm-hmm. in chapter three. A couple of plays, you know, chapter right. three, verse one. He 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 is the man who has divorced his wife in this chapter. I don't think anybody can deny that. And then, um, you know, he issues a decree of divorce in verse 8 of chapter 3. And I've heard people use that to justify their divorce. And we know the New Testament comes out pretty strongly against divorce for any reason. You have the exception clause in Matthew 99 that, you know, it's perfectly legitimate to divorce somebody for sexual immorality and marry another. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the other side of that is if you divorce somebody for reasons other than sexual immorality and marry another, you commit adultery. And so, um, of course, that's about marriage, divorce, and remarriage, not necessarily just a divorce. Right. And so, you know, I, I you look at this and you wonder, what is this? Can this tell us anything about divorce today? Or are we taking it too far, you know, to read this and and try to make any applications to actual, you know, divorce between two people in today's society? Well, we definitely have the, uh, you know, we have the grounds for divorce that Jesus lays down and saying, you know, if any man divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual morality. And that's um, that's the fault of Israel here in this analogy. You know, that's exactly. what's happening here. Yeah, that's what he says over and over again. You know, on every high hill and underneath every tree, they've committed adultery. Obviously, they're talking about the places where they pay homage to these false gods. So, Well, not just, you know, th- those were on high places, but I also mm-hmm. read those in terms of, you know, this is not a secret. Yeah, and right. you're not ashamed, you know, there's you can't even blush. You'll do this even out in the open on top of the mountains so everybody can see and everybody has seen it and I don't have to bring proof. You know, this is in the mm-hmm. courts where he takes them to court to divorce court. Mm-hmm. The evidence is plentiful. There's no need to go into, you know, having to call witnesses up to the adultery. It's been committed. Um, and in addition to that, you know, while he does have grounds for remarriage... He's not talking about marrying another person after this. Right. He's, what He's not God saying wants. I'm going to go join to Babylon and they're going to be Yeah, exactly. Uh, he, he speaks of Babylon constantly as the foreigner from the north. Babylon is never like the new wife or the new nation. It's always Israel as his nation and he is in pain and he's seeking and hoping for reconciliation. And it's all dependent upon Israel. They're the ones, really, that control their own fate here. Right. He's been deserted by them. Right. And so that's where the divorce took place. So kind of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, particularly verse 15, talks about that situation for Christians when they're deserted by their mate. They're, they're not under bondage or they're not you know enslaved. Mm-hmm. Um, to sin because of because of the action of the other person, um, but I do think there is some some help here for people who have been divorced because you know there I have friends and you have friends who um, had to get a divorce yeah. through no fault of their own, 
and maybe it was because their spouse committed adultery. Maybe it was just because their spouse got tired of them and just left, and they had no choice. I mean, you get deserted, you're deserted. Right. And they feel a lot of guilt over it and shame, and, you know, they can get some encouragement from that by reading Jeremiah chapter 3, I think. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm not saying that they should go remarry somebody. They need to look at, you know, what the New Testament teaches about that. Maybe they can get remarried, maybe not. Yeah. But as to the divorce that they suffered, uh, they need to look back at God as someone who can sympathize with what they're going through. Not as somebody who glares at them and accuses them, but as someone who's been through the very same thing. Right. So I think there is, you know, a little practical help here in this idea, just as long as we don't take it too far. Yeah, and you mentioned those two things about First Corinthians and the desertion, and then also we've mentioned the adultery as well. That's exactly the two problems that God lays out in chapter 2 and verse 13. He says, my people have committed two evils. One, they have forsaken me, and so there we have the desertion. They've left me alone. Yeah. And then separately... They have well. They've now the they're cisterns. drinking out of other cisterns. They've which is a figure for adultery, right? Right yeah. for the bowing down to the false gods. So there's those mm-hmm. two things that we talked about, and certainly God was not at fault here in this relationship. You look in chapter four or chapter two and verse four, where God says to them, "What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthless and?" went after worthlessness and became worthless. And, you know, I do think that can supply some encouragement to folks that have been wronged in marriage and due to no fault of their own, their spouse has left them. Maybe their spouse has, one, forsaken them and two, you know, hewed themselves to someone else. Uh, You know, they've committed adultery as well. I'm going to call you on that one. It's... Oh, you're That's using the terminology yeah. for that. <laughs> yeah, I'm using the terminology from Jeremiah 2.13. <laughs> Trying to stay politically correct here. Yes. And also yeah. biblical, uh, according to the... So if you're listening, that is the direct word from chapter 2, verse 13. <laughs> so I'm not trying to use improper English there. Yes. But, uh, you know, I think that does supply some comfort to those who maybe, what could I have done to keep them? You know, what did I do wrong? Well, maybe you didn't do anything wrong. Maybe they just have a heart like the people of Israel here and they yeah. are going to forsake you regardless. Let's hew out a break for ourselves here and uh, we'll come back with very little bit of time that we have left and make this practical. There's an interesting parallel in this section of Jeremiah to what Paul says about marriage in Ephesians chapter 5. After quoting the the law of Moses from Genesis 2.28 and Ephesians 5.31 that a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh, Paul says this in Ephesians 5.32. This mystery, he's talking about the mystery of marriage, is profound and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So what he's saying is, God takes marriage seriously, and he wants husbands and wives to love one another, 
to to lead and to submit and to do all those things described in Ephesians 5 and other places. He wants us to stay together, to be loyal to one another, to work through hard times, not just for each other, although that's important, but the ultimate reason for it is the glory of God. Every marriage is supposed to illustrate to the world that amazing bond between Christ and the church. And under the Old Covenant, that was between Jehovah and his people, Israel. So, if you're struggling with your marriage, you know, think of it on a more spiritual level and work harder for it, if not for yourself, if not for your children, if not for your spouse, for God, because your marriage is a witness to that amazing love of God and commitment of Christ to the church and the church's submission and love for Christ. Right. So I think we see that in Jeremiah and it's you know echoed in the New Testament. Yeah, I think it definitely encourages me in my marriage to be you know, to be one like where where God can stand and say, you know, what have I done wrong? You know, to be one who is always uh, giving love, who is forgiving, who is looking for every opportunity when when you're wronged to forgive, you know, rather than to be wanting to, um, you know, resort to wrath or anger, or say you did this or you did that, you know, to kind of uh, really be more patient and loving and to exemplify the loyalty that God did to his people, even though his people didn't always give it back. Um, and if both parties in a marriage are doing that, certainly a lot of problems are going to be gone. Um, but one of the, the only thing I have uh, for apply here is what repentance really means. And you see that God is calling for his people to repent. He wants them to repent, to come back to them. Um, in chapter 3 and verse 10, he, we have kind of a, a glimpse into some of the reforms that Josiah had already brought at this point. Uh, he was kind of in phase one of their repentance. Uh, phase two was coming, but uh, verse 10 of chapter 3 says, For all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, declares the Lord. And I think there's all of us would agree there's definitely a way for us, a right way for us to repent, and a way that's not really true repentance, uh, just kind of repentance and pretense. God calls them to do for a few God calls them to do a few things. You look in chapter three and verse thirteen, what he asks them to do is only acknowledge your guilt that you rebelled against the Lord your God and scattered your favors among foreigners under every green tree, and that you have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. The first part of repentance is confession. It is acknowledging your sin. And we know from James chapter five at the end of that um, letter there that we should be confessing our sins one to another. Uh, We should be praying for one another, um, and we should be asking for forgiveness. But you can't really ask for forgiveness. You can't really repent if you don't really feel like you've done anything wrong. Right. And I think that's why confession and acknowledging is so important. Not not just because you can say it out loud and it's like magical. And you mentioned some of this in our Q&A lesson this past Wednesday night. It's not like a... Um, incantation that you have to say it out loud before you die. Otherwise, if you have yeah. sinned and then you die, you're going to hell because you never, you never vocally expressed a confession of that sin. I think it's really 
important partly because of its just sheer acknowledgement of the fact that you've done something wrong. You know, to feel the same way that God feels about sin and to say, I am, I have done this and I recognize that it's wrong. Because if you demand your righteousness, then the, what you're implying is that God is wrong. Right. So somebody's wrong when there's a difference in the relationship. It's either you or God. And they are pretend, they're doing a pretense of repentance. And these people were far from repentance because, you know, in 6.15, Jeremiah says they don't even know how to blush. Right. It reminds me of Mark Twain's statement that man is the only animal who blushes or needs to. And, uh, you know, blushing is a natural, God-ingrained function of humanity. And we need that. And there's a lot of people who have lost shame in this culture. Always has been. I think people today think that's something new, but people have always been shameless in in culture today. And we know how that happens, too. And, man, I wish we had time to get into that. But, yeah. you know, the more you violate your conscience, the less shame you're going to feel till eventually you become callous and uh, unable to feel shame. And right. that, that's what happens in a lot of people's lives. And when you get in that condition, you can't repent. Because repentance requires godly sorrow. It requires... You know, the confession that you're talking about Mm -hmm. to come back to God. That's exactly what I was about to say. Sorry about that. No, no, no. I mean, I think, and this is the last thing I'll say on it. Chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. This is what he wants them to do. This is at the heart of the matter here. They can, do you see in chapter 4, verse 1, he tells them to remove their detestable things, stop worshiping the idols, get rid of the idols. But even more so than that, this is the real problem. Thus says the Lord of the men of Judah and Jerusalem, Break up your fallow ground and sow not among thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. He's asking them to change their hearts, to really remove uh, the disease from them instead of just trying to stop the symptoms. If you got a cold and you're sneezing and you're thinking, oh, I don't need to sneeze, and so you hold your nose every time you feel a sneeze come up, you might not be exhibiting the symptoms of the disease, but on the inside, you're definitely still sick. And I think that is why the 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 nation of Israel here, they're going to keep coming back to God and then falling away because they never really fix the disease. They never treat the disease. They're just trying to remove the symptoms and hoping the disease will fix itself through that. Yeah, it reminds me of Joel's statement in Joel 2.18, Rend your hearts and not your clothes. You know, they, back then when they would show repentance, they would tear their clothing. They're yeah. saying, what I want torn is your heart. I want you inside out. Um, mm-hmm. Let's move, let's hasten on to the next point. Let's talk about God's feelings here for a minute. Throughout this, I don't think anybody can deny that God's heart is breaking over this. And he's not this cruel, cold, distant deity up in the sky far away from people who could you know who couldn't care less whether or not they came to him right this is a husband weeping in anguish over the departure of his wife calling her to come back not on her terms on his terms because he's right and she's wrong right but calling her to come back pleading with her and there are a lot of other examples of this that people will pay attention throughout the Bible. You know, when he destroyed the world in a flood, 
Genesis 6 says that it grieved God in his heart that he had made man. You know, he he was hurting over that. And in Ephesians 4.30, Paul urges us not to grieve the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is God. You know, so you have this, you know, there are a lot of other examples, and some we'll encounter again as we study through Jeremiah. God hurts when we sin. He feels. He is closer He's closer to us than we can imagine. Like Paul Paul said on Mars Hill, he's not far from every one of us. He yeah. seeks a relationship with us. He wants a relationship with us. And we are the ones who are damaging all of that. Right. I, I don't think you can read chapter 4, verse 19, and think that God is just some angry yeah. deity yeah, yeah, yeah. where he says, My anguish, my anguish, I writhe in pain. Oh, the... We, we think that's Jeremiah at first read because probably, you know, we think this sounds too, I don't know, you know, maybe too personal. Well, even, he, he, he sounds worried about war. Yeah. So that that's what made me wonder if this is Jeremiah. But, you know, you get down to verse 22 and it really sounds like God. Yeah. I it's don't probably guess, both of them, like we said. Yeah, I guess we're just not accustomed to, you know, thinking of language like this, of God saying... I writhe in pain. My mm. heart is beating wildly. I cannot keep silent. You know, but certainly that's the idea that God has. And I think, you know, he's, he is not, doesn't have a heart of stone, very loving, very caring, very sad over what his people have done. And, you know, I, I, he talks about, you know, punishing them. What else could he have done? You know, it's not mm-hmm. like he's being unfair, cold, wrathful, vengeful God. Look at, I mean, when I read verse chapter 5, verse 7 and verse 9, verse 7 says, How can I pardon you? Your children have forsaken me. He goes on to say what all they've done. I fed them to the full. They committed adultery. They trooped to the brothels. They were well-fed, lusty stallions, each name for his neighbor's wife. Verse 9, Shall I not punish them for these things? And shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? And the answer there is obviously, yeah, you should. And that's, ex- yeah. that's exactly what he does. Yes, but he, he hurts, but he loves, and that's the wonderful message of, of this particular section of Jeremiah. Uh, we hope that you'll come back and get episode three of Jeremiah next week. Uh, thank you for joining us for this one. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at The66Podcast. Uh, you can also email Andrew at akingsley at arcoc.com or me at dkaiser at arcoc.com. Also check us out on the web, the66.net. And if you use an Apple device, you can go to iTunes and rate us or, even better, leave us a review. That helps us come up in the standings where people can find us better. And we want people to get this material because we're talking about the Bible here And the more people who listen to the 66 podcast will be listening to God's Word. So uh, help us out in that. You can just by leaving a review or a rating on iTunes, you can do that. And it's a little confusing to work the app to get to that point. And I was going to take some time to walk you through it, but we are totally out of time. So maybe next time, this will really get people wanting to listen. Next time, step-by-step instructions on how to leave a review.